Welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home, the podcast dedicated to helping pet professionals feel less stress and find more joy in their work lives and their home lives. My guest today is Dr. Leanne Lilly, Professor of Veterinary Behavior at Ohio State University. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Colleen. Happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. You and I were talking before we started recording about resilience as our theme word. And I said, one of my hesitations about using resilience is that I see resilience as the overarching umbrella of everything that Unleashed at Work and Home does. And so I often am looking for little subsets of it. And while we were talking, you shared with me that while going through your I'm going to get the word wrong. Residency? Is it residency? Yeah, it's a residency. People kept telling you how resilient you were and that you didn't always feel it yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, a residency is inherently challenging. It comes with its own challenges. And then just in case that wasn't enough, I, I brought some extras. So I have some chronic illnesses. Um, I showed up to my residency in a boot, having still not really quite re- recovered from a couple of toe fractures. Little things like that that, of course, add up over time. And anyone who tells you that they don't needs to study cortisol a little bit better. <laughs> and um, within probably the first, oh, six, ten months, I just, I'd also had a slew of those. So some things got better. I was wearing normal shoes. It was really great. And other things were sort of deteriorating around me outside of the residency and trying to find my place in the residency in terms of how does this residency work for me? What can I bring to it? Um, how do I make it better? Not only for me, but for anyone who does it after, just we're always a, a work in progress. And I was really struggling and I was talking to my family about it who aren't on the inside. None of them are in medicine at all. Um, they're all in IT and talking to the resident who previously finished is actually now a, a diplomat in behavior herself and in multiple situations, she said, well, you're very resilient. You're going to make it through this. Or I'm really impressed by your resilience. You just keep chugging along. It's going to be okay. And in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, I don't feel resilient. I just don't. Like I feel like I'm looking at everything around me and things are falling apart. And I can see where all the cracks are getting wider. And I feel like I'm juggling eight balls and I've only ever practiced five and something's going <laughs> to drop, right? Just I think how most of us feel every day to some degree. Yes. And it was it was fairly consistent um, just in, in terms of everything that was going on. And I, I talked a little bit about that with the, the other behaviorist and she's like, no, I that's sort of the point. I sort of had to sit down and think about it. And it is sort of the point, right? You don't have to feel resilient to be resilient, which is sort of like when we say someone's being brave. It's not that you're not afraid when you're brave. It's that you're afraid, but you do the right thing anyway, or the appropriate thing, or at least something, right? Yes. And you're allowed to make mistakes while being brave. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And so in hindsight, right, if you look up the definition, yes, did I make it through those things? Yes, did I bounce back? Absolutely. So I am, you know, by definition from those things, resilient on some scale of, of degree. And I would have never said that that's kind of how I, how I framed it. Because I think for me, most of my approach to it has always been about persistence, which can be both a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> so we think about persistence as continually moving forward and sticking with things. And sticking with things is sometimes not a good way to be mm-hmm. resilient, right? There's got to be that, that space to step sideways or to bend instead of break, instead of just rigidly moving forward. And so... 
I think that that was, that was also part of what was hard about it for me is that to me that enveloped some sort of camping type behavior that I was not internally feeling, but I think it, it fits under that umbrella, right? It's a small piece of that because you do, right? You're not going to bounce back from something if you can't even make it forward through it. And it doesn't have to be pretty while you're making it forward through it, which is another thing that I think most of us struggle with, right? We want it to be good. We want it to be right. We want it to be pretty. We would love for it to be effortless. Although I think most of us have decided that that's a pipe dream. (laughs) I hope it's okay if it's not effortless. And, And so I think from an internal dialogue, that was where I was coming from. But again, having made it through that, it, it's much more clear that that was just, that was part of how I was resilient was through my persistence. Yeah, I think that there's so much there to unpack and talk about. I particularly like the idea of that it's okay to make mistakes while doing it and that it doesn't have to be effortless. And I think it's really easy to look at other people and see only their successes and only the fluidity with which they do things and go, well, it's easy for her (laughs) and not recognize that it wasn't easy for her and it wasn't easy for anyone. Or that it may at this point in their training be easy for them Mm -hmm. because they're almost at the end of their residency and guess what you just started. It's not supposed to be easy for you. If it was already easy for you, you wouldn't need to do this training program. And I think that's something that particularly in this field, right? We tend to collect do-gooder, goal-driven perfectionists. And oh, yeah. The animal people pleaser, field. too. And yeah, people pleaser <laughs> and compassionate. So if you package yeah. all of those into one location, and then you have a whole bunch of tensions on all of those drives, and someone on the outside looks like it's a cakewalk, it can make it almost harder for you to feel like you are tugging forward. And it doesn't necessarily matter that you logically know that yes they had to go through this and yes it was probably hard for them at some point what you see is just what your knee-jerk sort of reptilian brain responds to and then that becomes if we're not careful your inner dialogue as well yes yes that's really important kind of making that head heart connection of like oh I, yeah i totally understand that and but then to really feel it because if you don't feel it you do get the ugly inner dialogue So tell me, how has your inner dialogue changed now that you have adopted resilient as an adjective to describe yourself? Um, Oh, that's a good question. I think some of the the dialogue change has not necessarily been conscious, although as I catch myself doing it, I do at least like to give myself a nice little positive reinforcement, like, oh, that was a really good mental way of looking at that. Good job, right? Like gold star for self. Your future self, past self, you did okay, right? So that I think has been something that um, that I've been more willing to do um, and been better about doing. And I think too, having someone tell me you don't have to feel resilient to be resilient was really helpful in terms of of trying to integrate that in, into my my sense of okay, I'm I'm faced with a challenge. Every day we're going to be faced with a challenge. Some of them are again, huge cracks that seem like they're going to form the Grand Canyon and other of them are like "Mm, stubbed your toe, right? And how we sort of internalize those can really set you up for how much harder it is or isn't to make it through. And so I, I think it's important to say, yep, there's a big crack, holy crap. And, and then take that and say, okay, well, what do I want out of that crack? What do I need out of that crack? How much of that crack is mine to address? Because there are things that just 
aren't ours to fix mm-hmm. or does that is for us to let go and then say, okay, if, you know, if my goal is B, what does a plan to get to B look like? Knowing that our plans are usually these beautiful, perfect straight lines between two points and how <laughs> you get there is usually, well, you climbed a ladder, you rolled down a hill, you swam in the Grand Canyon, you climbed up a tree, it fell over, you bicycled around in circles. And then, oh, by the way, you got to somewhere close to B and then you assess, you say, maybe this is better or maybe it's good enough and not penalizing ourselves for those, any of those things, the process to get there that wasn't a straight line or the fact that, well, we, we were aiming for B, but we got to C.3. Is that okay? Yeah. And if you can start with a little back step to say, okay, there's a, there's a challenge or there's a problem and what, what really is my responsibility about it and what really is my path about it or my plan. I think that's helpful again, provided that you don't hold yourself too strictly to any of those. Yes. And the questions that you just popped up with as you went through were wonderful because they were very personal as opposed to how should it be or what should they do or what should happen. You were very much action based on, you know, what parts of this are mine? How do I want to see this turn out? What should I do as my next step? And that matters a lot for resilience and inner chatter and all of those other things. And that some, some of that has actually just come through my behavior training and the amount of communication that we do in this particular job, right? I am not an orthopedic surgeon, so nobody ever hands me a defective knee. I don't surgerize it and send it home and say, you know, when it's done healing, it's going to be better than when it came in. I fixed it. I don't get to say that. <laughs> and I'm okay with not getting to say that. But it also means that because the work that I do is much more of a partnership between myself and my patients and the referring veterinarian and the client. And they're doing so much more of the day-to-day boots on the, the groundwork that it's it's become very important for me not to say shoulds to a lot of my clients and patients, unless I'm talking about what we would expect from the, the data that we have and then framing it that way because mm-hmm. shoulds carry the sense of guilt. They carry the sense of expectation and they can set yourself or your clients up for feeling like you failed even when nothing has gone wrong. And so practicing that for my clients and my patients, it's just sort of oozed into my inner dialogue, which was kind of fascinating to, to catch myself doing that. But also again, one of those moments where I'm like, oh, old star self, look at you go using your own good communication skills on your brain. Mm-hmm. So you obviously have a great level of self-awareness that you are able to do some of this in real time and catch and go, oh, yay, gold star for me. And I love the past self, future self dialogue where future self is going to thank past self for this and tell past self they did okay. Awesome. I think that's a piece that a lot of people really struggle with, the real-time resilience. And I always tell people it comes, it comes over time and we can't be shooting for that piece in the moment, we need to have the self-compassion to say, well, it didn't go as well as I hoped yesterday. And I'm going to think about how I would handle that situation when it comes again, because life is so cyclic that odds are, if you had a poor conversation yesterday, you're going to get to practice that one again in the future, perhaps with a different person on the other end of it. But that concept and that over time, we can develop this real-time gold star for me. I did that. Or, oh, I noticed I didn't say should when I would have previously. What are your thoughts about developing sort of a real-time resilience? I think part of getting there was 
actually not focusing on it, which sounds a little backwards in, in now that that sentence come out of my mouth. But I think sometimes when we are so strictly focused on our outcomes, we do lose sight of the either the steps we need to take to get there or whether or not the steps we need to take there are actually steps we want to take. And then we need to reevaluate whether that, that goal is, is something that we want. And some of that has has come through again I have so many of these types of conversations with my my clients and I get a lot of good practice doing that but some of it is also watching other people have those conversations with clients and having these conversations with trainers that I'm working with and saying well what are what are our goals for this dog are those the client's goals for this dog or those just my goals for this dog Mm -hmm. and the steps that we would need to take to get there are those things we can do are those things we want to do? Are they feasible for us? And recognizing that if the answer to any of those is no, that that's okay. It just means, oh, we just reevaluate that and to try and bring that to what's going on in day to day. It's just like this morning when I got up and I had forgotten to set the coffee pot up and it was an extra early morning because we're trying to get everything done ahead of time so that we can all go home. And it was like, well, that would have gone better if, if not. And I wonder if there's a good way to remind myself to do that in the future. And then magically, right, because coffee makers are wonderful, the coffee still got made, still got to work on time. And so I, I think those types of small practices at the level where you don't feel overwhelmed and you aren't looking at the cracks in your wall going, that's going to become a grand canyon, where it's just like, hmm, there's a dent. Do I have enough emotional spackle for that dent? Those help you practice for the, the more serious situations because it's easier to do them real time. I love emotional speckle. I, I'm totally stealing that phrase because it's, it kind of is what it is. I mean, like we have bandwidth some days to deal with things and some days we don't. And we have to look at, well, what is it going to take today to do that and, and make the choices? But the idea of being able to just kind of smooth it over with some emotional speckle appeals. And it doesn't mean it didn't happen too. I think that's that's the other thing. The, the idea that resilience is like, oh, you're exactly the same as after something threw you for a loop, I think is actually very toxic. It's, it's borderline on toxic positivity, right? Because it, it suggests that, well, this terrible thing happened or you got completely derailed or you were juggling a lot of things and you're supposed to, which is again, one of those words we try not to, to use. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to something, whether that was be happy about it or come out better than you were before or feeling like you're on top of the world or any of those things when the reality is that that's probably not what's going to happen anyway. And if you can come out of it at all, then you need a gold star for that, right? You've earned that one. And if you come out of it with any insight about how does that change things moving forward, whether that's little changes like, oh, set an alarm on your phone so that your coffee pot gets programmed or big things like, I'm going to work on not saying should to myself and I'm going to track it so I can see how I'm doing and work on that actively. If you come away with either of those or any range of those, then then you've made it through it. You've changed as a result of your experiences, and I think you're 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 stepping towards resilience, and you don't have to be happy about it, and that's okay. <laughs> I think that that's an important piece to keep in mind because it's easy to lose sight of that that there is not a perfect nirvana world where everything is easy and smooth, and that happy people, resilient people still have to deal with a whole lot of bad stuff. Um, 
And that's part of it, but it's how much they carry it and how much they internalize it and how much it weighs them down that is different between people who have greater resilience and people who have less. So from the perspective of, of somebody who's feeling really kind of at the end of their rope, they don't have a whole lot of bounce back right now, and they're just feeling like, is this all there is? Like, is it ever going to change? What are some of your thoughts for finding a light at the end of the tunnel? So I think every tunnel is a little bit different. And so to being careful about not overgeneralizing. But I think if you're in a position where, right, you're, you're either worrying that this is as good as it gets or and this isn't very good or this isn't a way that I can keep going or I don't know that I can make it through this, whatever that is for you, stopping and asking the questions do I need to make it through this is actually an important question. Do I need to keep trying to do this thing that I'm trying to do, whether that's applying emotional spackle or is that my crack to fix, right? Asking ourselves that question. And it can be hard, especially when it's related to our jobs and our passions or related to a part of your life that you face every day, right? Your, your partner or your family or those sorts of things, right? The more important to us it is, the more emotionally charged it's going to be both externally and internally, And if you decide that, yes, you do want to, or you do need to keep going through whatever that is that you're going through rather than sidestepping, then saying no to other things may actually be the most important thing you do to help yourself do that. It's hard to do. Oh my gosh. It sounds silly to say practice saying no, practice finding a million nice ways to say no, but it's actually really helpful because things are going to come up and maybe you will want to help, but maybe deep down, you know, you don't have the bandwidth to add that in because you do feel like you're at the end of the rope and it's okay to say not now and see if maybe later that's something you can revisit. I may have done that to you during my residency. You did. And look how happy I was to wait until you were available. <laughs> that that yes. no uh, respected your boundaries and made me entirely comfortable, which is always our fear is like, if we say no, people are going to get their feelings hurt or whatever. Right. But I also think, too, how you say no is important, but also recognizing that if saying no in a situation that is important for your self-preservation or your family's self-preservation right, actually really does upset somebody, that is unfortunate, right? It's not like we're like, oh, yes, I upset someone today. Like, no, nobody goes out and does that. But it's also some of that's not yours to own, right? Some of that is not your crack to patch because people get to have feelings, They get to have their own motivations. It's lovely when they line up with ours. That's (laughs) awesome. And we love that, right? That's where we have friends and family and people we love hanging around, but they don't have to. And at some point, we we could say, I'm sorry if that's upsetting. I I really am. But that doesn't change what I can and cannot Mm -hmm. do. Uh, We veterinarians are a little bit spoiled with that because we get practice saying that from a legal standpoint. And so that I think for some of us, that helps us integrate that into other things for for others. It's still a struggle, but right. If someone asks me, Hey, you know, you're the only veterinarian my dog can be in the room with because we've done so much work together and he thinks everybody else has Godzilla. Would you sign a health certificate for me? I have to tell them that I legally can't do it anymore. I'm not certified in the state of Ohio and my certification in Colorado lapsed long time ago. They were very nice about it. Um, and, and I'm just, right. It's like, unfortunately, legally, I, I can't do that. Right. And so we get practice saying that phrase or unfortunately, legally for that to happen, blank, 
which isn't something that, that could happen. And I think that's, that's helpful for us to practice that framework. It's harder when you're in a position where you're, you're not protected in those same ways and you don't have a framework to fall back on. Now, some people's employers provide that framework and that's amazing. And some people's don't. And if you're independently employed, right, then you have to provide that framework for yourself, which is a whole extra bag of, of resilient uh, eating uh, toolkit <laughs> and framework building that um, I, I don't personally even know that I have that. And so the people who do it are amazing. But I think it's important to, to give yourself that, that space and to give yourself that bandwidth. And, and sometimes it means practicing saying it, might write it out and go, well, that doesn't sound the way I wanted it to sound. Or practice it with someone who's completely unrelated and say, okay, here's, here's what I've got. I need to say no. And I need that to come out as, as sort of a, an apologetic matter of fact and try and see that that doesn't break the relationship afterwards. It does take a lot of practice to do all that. That's something that we were working on in the Unleashed Resilience community in the fall. Um, we had a whole a whole month talking about complaints and sort of looking at what unmet need was coming up in our own personal complaints and the complaints we hear from others. And then a whole month on making clear requests and either agreeing to them or, or not agreeing to follow through on like having clear communication. And within some of that is like the setting of the boundary. Like I don't answer emails on Sunday, period, end of space, you know, and, and, to practice some of those things because we're like, oh, they're waiting, they're waiting, whatever is coming up for you. A lot of that's in your head. And some of it might be mm -hmm. in their head too. Like they could, you could totally get an email on Monday going, I emailed you on Saturday afternoon and I haven't heard back. But again, is that your problem to carry? You know, like if you're setting sure. a boundary yeah. and you've made a decision, it can be really challenging and tough. And having having people to talk some of that through with in, in real time and, and coming up with a few words and phrases that help you delay a commitment, not avoid it completely, but just say, that's a really interesting idea. And I'd like to think about that. And I can let you know on Tuesday, whether or not I'll be able to do that. It sounds great, but I'm not sure I can. Gives some practice in that and a little bit of fluidity and, and, I don't know, comfort, I guess, is is the word I'm going for because it's not natural for us. We are kind of people-pleasing, want everything to go smoothly and comfortably for everyone, and we want everyone to be happy with us. Yep. And it doesn't always happen that way. And some of those things are things we would generally, really, genuinely, really, really like to do because they would make us happy. And sometimes when you're drowning in other things and you're trying to patch a whole bunch of crash, you're like, I just really want to do that one thing that sounds actually really fun instead of the things that I'm dealing with now. And saying no in that situation can be very hard functionally, like to do as well as hard on yourself. And so again, that's a situation where you can say not yet instead of no, that may also feel better, which then relieves the pressure of saying, oh God, everything's falling apart. And I had this one cool opportunity and it was going to be really fun. And I had to say no. Mm -hmm. And so just said, mm, I, how, how does March look right? Like, right now? No, but how does March look? So that I think is also, again, hard to practice, but the more you do it, even with little things the, the better it, it comes around when, when it's a big thing that you really need that bandwidth yeah. for. And that goes back a little bit to the questions that you started with the 
the personal questions of what do I want and what, because a lot of what people find themselves doing isn't necessarily something that they personally are driven to do beyond that should, you know, that expectation piece. And to sort of look and explore, is this the best use of my time and energy? Are there ways I could change it? If I asked for help, what would happen? Because asking for help, heaven forbid, I'm as guilty of that as most. (laughs) Um, So it's not like I'm saying you need to learn how to ask for help and not aware that I have that same tendency. I, when I look around at the community of pet professionals, I see such um, amazing, passionate, talented people who are really, really determined not to be any trouble to anyone else. <laughs> that is a good way of putting it. That is a very good way of putting it, right? We go into this business so that we can help other people. And then it's like, we forget that we're people and we need yeah. help. And that not only that, but it's okay. And we're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who are driven to help people. And if we ask them, they're like, well, yes, I love helping Mm -hmm. people. I had an eye-opening moment about that years ago with, with a friend who was experiencing cancer. And she asked me to walk her dogs at lunchtime because her husband couldn't get home at lunch to do it. And she wanted to make sure her dogs got out. And I live in Northern Virginia where lunchtime is not a time you walk a dog. <laughs> it's too hot and sticky and miserable. And for a couple of weeks, I was walking her dogs at lunchtime, happy, happy, happy to be able to help her in some way. And like, there wasn't anything in the world that could have convinced me to walk my own dog at lunchtime in, you know, 97 degrees and humidity in Virginia. And yet, when she was willing to say, I really need some help, could you help? I was very happy to have a specific way to help. And I was very happy to be done with the job too when when that was no longer needed. <laughs> so yes. That, yes. that taught me a little bit about being vulnerable enough to ask for help when I need it because I realized how very happy I was to be able to help her And that when I was always so busy going, no, no, I don't need any help from everyone else. In some ways, I wasn't letting other people have that feeling that I had helping her, you know, like, oh, I made a difference. And it can be challenging if you get too far down that that road to figure out if someone's going to help, what are they even going to do, right? When you have one too many balls in the air, it's like, which one are they going to catch? And can I keep my rhythm if Mm -hmm. they do? And sometimes what that means is, gosh, I'd love some help. I can't even figure out what that help would be. Can I give you, like, can I tell you what I'm going through? And then when you find something goes, I can easily do that. Could you take that? Or could you suggest that? And that can also be helpful, right? Sometimes you don't even have the mental wherewithal to do the mental work to figure out what help I need. And you don't always have to. And that's another one that's hard. Again, both functionally as well as emotionally and retrospectively, that can be challenging. Yeah. And just even talking to someone about everything that you're dealing with, even if they can't take any piece of it, that is helpful. And that is a a proven, scientifically proven piece of resilience is having community and having the ability to put language around your struggle and have someone hear it and understand and go, wow, that sounds hard. Like that alone can make you feel better. Yes. And two, sometimes you'll come around and you'll find that piece of of something that either makes it make sense or makes it better or makes you 
understand for yourself why it's harder than you feel like it should be. And when you have that moment, right, again, then you get to shed a little bit of extra weight that you're carrying in your luggage to say, oh, well, now it at least makes mm-hmm. sense, right, whether emotionally or mentally, and so that you can, again, free up that space to continue doing whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. And your luggage analogy just reminded me, Rachel Finney from Columbus Humane talks about baggage sometimes. And she talks about that baggage can be perceived as a negative, like all the crud you're hauling with you. Or it can be the things that you bring because you're going to need them on this journey. You know, like. I think I think it's both. Right. And I think the journey and the idea of packing and luggage is a really good analogy for a whole host of those things. Right. Because some of the things that I bring to a situation are right like this I'm still carrying that around I should really try and get over that but some of them are I've been through this great experience I've been through this residency and exceptionally overeducated as I like to call it <laughs> right and I have a lot of practice doing you know x y and z and and I'm th- right that's part of my baggage as part of my luggage I've packed those for this trip and some things you pack intentionally and some things you pack accidentally and some things you forget and some things you pack intentionally you don't need but I think all of those things are okay as, as again, as long as we, we look at them that way and, and we don't say, well, the, the things that you're carrying have an inherent value or not on their own um, and let them have a range of values. There's actually a very good book. I think it's Tim O'Brien called The Things They Carry, um, which was primarily about framed in, in the stories and the things soldiers carried both emotionally as well as physically right? pocket knives, what's in the knapsack. But I think both of those are also really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of us do feel like in animal care industries, right, that we're not necessarily at war because we're not waging it against someone or something specifically, but, right, there's this constant sense of battling against the the, the, the troubles that are these animals are, are going through and the troubles that the professions are going through. And it's very similar in those regards in terms of right, you get up every day and you sort of fight this, this battle against right, some sort of negative animal welfare or some sort of misinformation or um, the, the stress of, of these professions and all of that caregiving. And then at the end of the day, right, there are things that you've brought with you through the day. There are things that you've let go, things that you've lost and, Sometimes losing them is good. Sometimes losing them is not. But I think it's okay to, to essentially accumulate those things over time. Decide are they useful or not. And it's okay to still have them. Yes. I think that was a beautiful summary and probably a really good place for us to wrap up on our discussion of resilience. Um, so if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? So the Ohio State University's VET webpage, um, the section just for behaviors, vet.osu.edu slash behavior, um, can learn about what our appointments are based on. There's some first-time client information. Our service email is out there as well. So you can, if you have a question about what we do, you can reach out there. Um, if you have a specific question because you're a veterinarian in the area, you can reach out to us through that as well. We're always happy to chat in that regard. Um, and the department is also involved in the education side. So if you have someone who's interested in veterinary school and veterinary behavior um, or veterinary behavior from a technician side, that's a good way to reach out to us as well. Yes, and there's such a need for that. We need more veterinary behaviorists and veterinary behavior technicians. Yes, we're only at 86 veterinary behaviorists in the country and Canada. 
hopefully many more. But we're yes. growing. We're growing. We have a very large group of residents at the moment. What so. is very large? Yes, that, that's a good question. I think we're at over 30 right now, which the first year that I was a resident, I think we were around 20 total for everybody in all stages of their, their residency. And there are three more residencies opening this next summer. So we'll add three more at minimum. Well, that's exciting. I mean, if there's only 86, you know, in the U.S. and Canada and you've got 30 in the pipeline, that is a big change. Still, we need more. <laughs> it's a long pipeline, yes. And it's a long pipeline, particularly for the, the non-conforming or non-traditional residents who are essentially doing general practice on some days of the week and then doing this other days of the week and trying to power through that. Those are some people you should talk to about resilience because they've got it. Well, awesome. You'll have to give me a few names and we will we will bring people on. I'm always looking for fascinating people to talk to on the show. And I'm so glad that you were able to join me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming ones, head on over to ColleenPilar.com and sign up for my weekly email to be notified of upcoming episodes and other events that will help keep you feeling your best, truly unleashed at work and home.